0: Some of you have heard me share before about the difference between a virtuous cycle and a vicious cycle. A virtuous cycle is a feedback loop. They're both feedback loops in which, but for a virtuous cycle, it's the building blocks of your life are mutually reinforcing each other and supporting growth. Despite the various setbacks that life will always throw our way, if you're in a virtuous cycle, you still find yourself overall moving from strength to strength. In contrast, a vicious cycle is when one or more building blocks in your life begin to crumble, and this can be for any confluence of reasons, often outside of your control, and you may find yourself in a slow or fast downward spiral. Let me also stipulate up front that not everyone is in the same position in regard to what, whether you're creating a virtuous or vicious cycle. Due to historic systems of oppression, some people have more advantages, more safety nets, and others fewer. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to truly level the playing field to make it equitable. In the meantime, it can be helpful to explore what is it that we can do to incline ourselves toward a virtuous cycle. To that end, as uh, Danielle shared a little bit already in the spoken meditation, I want to share with you some highlights from a book published just a few months ago. It's titled From Strength to Strength by Arthur C. Brooks. He's a professor of social science at Harvard University, and his primary area of research is what does work? And what doesn't work for finding and creating happiness? And he's especially interested in how we can best maintain a virtuous cycle, not only at the peak of our career, but also through the end of our lives. I'll tell you a little bit about how this book came to be. About a decade ago, Dr. Brooks was nearing age 50, and he unexpectedly found a list of professional goals that he had written a decade earlier uh, around, on his 40th birthday, actually. Now, when he wrote that list, he was sure, if I accomplish these goals that I'm writing on this list on my 40th anniversary, on my 40th birthday, I will be happy. If these things happen, I will be satisfied. And it turns out, a decade later, as he approached 50, he had already met or exceeded all of them. He was the president of a prominent think tank in Washington, D.C. He'd published a number of best-selling books. He was a a prominent and sought-after public speaker. But despite all those successes, he wasn't particularly satisfied or happy. And it was ironic, because he's a social scientist who, like, studies happiness, right? Uh... He was also increasingly aware that he was feeling less motivated and less physically able to maintain the pace of work that had allowed him to achieve that level of success. He was typically working 80 hours a week, so about 12 hours a day, 7 days a week. Now, y'all, I work a lot. I don't work that much. Uh, And even in my early 40s, I can begin to appreciate where Brooks is coming from. What is sustainable long-term. That answer feels different to me than in my early 20s. And some of my perspectives have changed on, wow, what really does bring happiness and satisfaction? Some of the things I thought would, haven't. Some of the things that I thought maybe wouldn't have. So I want to share with you some of the major findings of Brooks's research, but let me warn you, there's good news and there's bad news. I'm going to start with the bad news, but stick with me. Here, those of you online, stick with me. We're going to get to the good news in a second. Uh, here's the thing. The results are in, and it shows that all of us human beings experience declines somewhere between our late 30s and early 50s. I'll give you three representative examples. Declines show up earliest in professional athletes. They just can't hide it. Peak performance for professional athletes, especially sports that depend on sprinting or explosive power, it it just starts decreasing around age 30. You just can't do it the way you used to, and you can't hide it. Scientists tend to get one more decade of peak productivity than athletes. Nevertheless, the chances of making a paradigm-shifting discovery in science decreases precipitously in your late 30s. Similarly, for entrepreneurs—this is why we have all these tech billionaires in their twenties—for entrepreneurs, there is much less creative innovation starting around age thirty. There are parallels in essentially every skill-related field. Now please be assured, the takeaway from this sermon is not to encourage ageism. (laughs) It's actually the opposite. So before we, uh, but before we get to the good news, it really is important to be honest about our predicament, to be real about our situation. To do that, Brooks invites us to imagine. Imagine there are three doors in front of you. How many of you are old enough to remember, let's make a deal, right? Okay, I got some hands. Very good. You can choose door number one. That door is denial. That door is anger. You can deny the facts and rage against decline, setting yourself up for frustration and disappointment at the end of your life. Or you can choose choose door number two, despair. You can shrug. You can give in to decline and experience your aging as an unavoidable tragedy. Or you can choose door number three. There's a goat behind door—no. Door number three. Uh, acceptance and change. You can accept that what got you to this point will not work and get you into the future, and you need to build some new strengths and some new skills, and we're going to talk about that. Brooks's research shows that learning to work skillfully with the changing reality of our lives is the key to sustaining a virtuous cycle and continuing to move from strength to strength. Now, it's going to be different strengths, but still moving from strength to strength all the way through the end of your life. As you hear sometimes in meditation circles, we cannot stop the waves of change, but we can learn to surf. So, what does that look like specifically? As we age, we human beings tend to be slower at solving the sort of problems, and, of some sorts of problems, and we're less able to brainstorm paradigm-shifting innovations. It's not that we can't brainstorm, but it's just not on the same level. It's kind of like, you know, I'm pretty active on, like, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, but I'm getting to the time in my life where I feel like, get off my lawn, Snapchat. Do you, do you know what I'm saying? Like that's you just tend to, you know, get off my lawn, uh TikTok, right? Like um So that's the bad news, but but don't miss the good news. As we age, we also tend to find ourselves with new capabilities that are actually unavailable to young folks with less life experience. With age, we become better at combining and utilizing complex ideas and at interpreting the ideas that others have because we have this wide array to draw on to compare it to, sometimes better at distilling ideas than the people who came up with them who may be younger. Researchers describe the difference, this difference as the shift from fluid intelligence to crystallized intelligence. Some of you may have heard about this before. Fluid intelligence is the ability to reason, to think flexibly, and to solve novel problems, which tends to decrease in your 40s and throughout the rest of your life. And crystallized intelligence, which is the ability to use a stock of knowledge learned in the past, that tends to increase with age and does not menace, diminish until quite late in life, if at all. That just keeps getting better. I love that. Increasing awareness that our ability to use our accumulated knowledge and experience, it increases with age and does not diminish, if at all. I find that really clarifying and helpful. Brooks uh, summarizes his research this way. When you're young, you have raw smarts. When you're old, you have wisdom. When you're young, you can generate lots of facts. And when you're old, you know what those facts mean and how to use them and which of those facts matter most. Here's a real-life example of why this matters. Today, almost a century and a half after his death, the name Charles Darwin remains world-famous, you know, for being influential as one of the most, you know, impactful scientists of all time for his work in evolutionary bio- biology, in his own day, Darwin was well known all the way through the end of his life. He was buried as a national hero in Westminster Abbey. Yet internally, he was increasingly dissatisfied in his own old age. He lived to be seventy-three. In his final years, he wrote, quote, I have not the heart or strength at my age to begin any investigations lasting years, which is the only thing that I enjoy. He wasn't able to pivot. He said, I have everything to make me happy and contented, but my life has become very wearisome to me. Keeping in mind the story of Darwin's dispiriting final chapter, let's compare the life of Johann Sebastian Bach. Bach skyrocketed to fame in his youth. At age 15, he was performing pieces on the organ that people said was impossible. No human being could do this, and he was doing it at 15. He published more than a thousand compositions for all available instruments in his day. As some of you have heard me quote before, not all musicians believe in God, but they all believe in Bach. But time and change, they come for us all. Even though Bach was the undisputed master of Baroque music, he was eventually overshadowed by none other than one of his own sons, C.P.E. Bach. J.S. Bach's Baroque style became increasingly viewed as old-fashioned and stuffy, and it was the young C.P.E., not Johann Sebastian, who found it easiest to innovate in the emerging classical period because he had that fluid intelligence, and J.S. was increasingly crystallized. But unlike Darwin, who hit a wall and ended his life increasingly despondent and depressed, J.S. Bogg was able to reinvent himself, even as his son displaced him as the family's uh, musical celebrity. Johann Sebastian found that his final decade, that was his mid-50s through his mid-60s, he found it to be deeply meaningful. His great project during that time was writing The Art of the Fugue. He actually died while writing it. You know, it's kind of like, you know, faded off. And it remains an influential contribution to the teaching of Baroque compositional techniques today. J.S. Bach experienced professional decline as a musical innovator, but far from frustration and despair, he finished out his life as a happy father and reinvented himself as a teacher. That same invitation and opportunity will eventually be before us all if we live long enough. And know, as we talked about in the New Year's sermon, some of you will remember, we only live—if you live to be 80, you get 4,000 weeks on this earth. It's not very long, right? Just 4,000 weeks. How do we make the most of our crystallized intelligence in the second part of our life, sharing wisdom from all that we've learned and experienced, to give ourselves the greatest chance of continuing to move from strength to strength, even if it's different strengths, and stay in that virtuous cycle? I should also say that the perspective Brooks is promoting is not new, although his view is grounded in modern social scientific research. Two thousand years ago, though, we can see folks like the Roman philosopher Cicero. Uh, He taught that a meaningful second half of life is created by dedicating yourself to three things—service, wisdom, and counsel. Service—seeking opportunities to serve others wisdom, sharing those hard-won insights that you have learned through your decades of experience and counsel. Rather than building up of self and assets and prestige that often dominate the first half of life, it's shifting your priorities to mentoring, advising, teaching, volunteering. Another way of framing this shift is that one of the primary skills in the first half of life is all about addition you know adding lots of different things stuff and facts and money etc but one of the primary skills in the second half of life is actually skillful subtraction as the saying goes the one who dies with the most toys still dies right none of us are getting out of this alive Brooks challenges us to consider that at a certain point in midlife, we can radically increase and extend our happiness and satisfaction if we pivot to giving away all that stuff we accumulated in the first half of life. Uh, you know, things like volunteering, giving away your time, supporting worthy causes, as well as mentoring, advising, and teaching upcoming generations. I think this is interestingly parallel to what the Buddhists call the three antidotes. The three antidotes to the three poisons. The three poisons are delusion, greed, and hatred, and the antidotes are wisdom and generosity, and compassion. So the delusion is thinking that you can just stay the same throughout your life, that nothing's changing and what's worked for you before. That's that's delusion. That's what Buddhists call ignorance. The antidote to that is wisdom, realizing that there are different strengths and shifting to those and building on them. Greed is thinking, I just have to keep accumulating, right? And the antidote is shifting to subtraction, shifting to generosity. The uh, final poison is hatred, hating the change. I just hate it, right? Just grasping, just wanting it to be different than it is. And the antidote is compassion. Compassion for yourself, change is hard. You know, may I be gracious to myself, gracious to others uh, in this change. For the mathematically inclined, here's Brooks' attempt to distill this insight into a formula. He says, some some of you are going to have math PTSD, but just stick with me. Satisfaction equals what you have divided by what you want. So imagine this is a fraction. Satisfaction is what you have divided by what you want. So in the first half of life, we're encouraged often to focus on the numerator, the top half of the fraction. Uh, So getting more and more up there, and eventually if that number is big enough, it's bigger than the bottom number, right? So you can just get more and more and more. But in the second half of life, a critical factor can be changing the denominator, decreasing what you want. In the words of a Spanish mystic, the one who has the most needs least. Don't create needs for yourself. This approach of wise subtraction is sometimes called having a reverse bucket list. You know what a bucket list is, all those things you want to do before you die. And that's fine. If you've got things that you know in your heart, you are not going to die happy if you haven't done those things. If you can, to them, it's okay to have a bucket list, but here's the reverse bucket list. It can be tremendously liberating, and look at a bucket list that you made years earlier and declare about one or more of those items, this will no longer bring me the happiness and peace that I thought it would, and I simply don't have the time to make it my goal. I choose to detach myself from this desire. I choose to be free. I choose to emancipate myself. That is the liberating wisdom of subtraction, of changing the denominator on the formula of your happiness and contentment. Uh, As Brooks sometimes says to his graduate students at Harvard who are mostly in their late 20s, he says, given the average life expectancy of US citizens is a little less than 80 years, you all may only have 50 or 60 Thanksgivings left. He says, so make the most of them. You may only have 20 or 30 with your parents, if you're lucky right? I mean, my dad died when I was 15. You know, we don't know how long we have with the loved ones in our life. He's trying to put things in perspective, because surveys show that the average American, if you ask them, says that the beginning of old age is around 85. I don't know if that's insulting or how that, how that feels, but that's what surveys show. Survey says 85. Um, but here's the thing. That is six years after the average person dies. Most people think the beginning of old age is six years after the average person dies. We avoid thinking realistically about the length of our lives and the time we have left, lulling us into the false belief that we have all the time in the world. Being honest about our mortality can help us, again, focus on making the most of life for ourselves, for others. So, how can we incline ourselves to be less like Darwin, unrealistically trying to meet the expectations of the fluid intelligence that was just you know, changing, we just don't have it what we had decades earlier. And more like Bach, reinventing ourselves as teachers, as mentors, as elders, leveraging crystallized intelligence that again, tends to increase with age and does not mit- diminish until late in life, if at all. As I move toward my conclusion, let me underscore that Brooks says if he could raise awareness about the most common pitfall he sees people falling into and in trying to uh, become happy, it's this. And Danielle spoke a little bit about this in the spoken meditation. He says, Beware the lie that if it feels good, do it. Now, he's not trying to be unduly, anti-pleasure. He's not saying there's anything wrong with pleasure, but he's cautioning it against too great a focus on short-term satisfaction. In his words the world lies. It li- you know, advertising lies about what will make you happy. Idols will not make you happy, thus you must not worship yourself. Our invitation instead is to make that shift from addition, accumulating things for ourselves and our ego, to subtraction, being generous with our time, with our talent, with our treasure. From a more positive angle, he says that if he had to try and distill everything he's learned, if you don't have time to read the 200 page book that I've been sharing highlights from, he says if he had to distill it into seven words, it's these Use things, love people, revere the sacred. Use things, love people revere the sacred. Those seven words are worth worth pondering in the days to come. Use things. How might the spirit of wise subtraction be inviting inviting you or me or us to loosen our ties around mere things? Love people. How might the spirit of love be calling us to connect more fully, generously, and open-heartedly to those around us? And revere the sacred. What really matters? Ask yourself that. What really matters at the end of the day, at the end of a life, what really matters to you in this season? What will help you move from strength to strength all the way to the end? As we hold these questions in our heart, let's stand, rise, embody your spirit. Let's sing together hymn number on your teal hymnal, 1028, Fire of Commitment.